Good morning, FCC Church. Welcome to another beautiful Sunday morning here at FCC. Could you please stand and worship along with us? sure what that if it was candy I was eating it <laughs> Isaiah 41 13 says for I am the Lord your God who holds your right hand who says to you do not fear I will help you amen, amen. let's pray together Lord we're so thankful that we can come together this morning and enjoy this time of worship 
Lord, we're here to lift up your son, Jesus. And Lord, we're thankful that we don't have to just stumble through life alone, that you're there with us to hold our hand. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Okay, there's one person that's glad. That's good. Well, this morning, make sure you fill out your connection card for us. And uh, if you're online, we ask that you do it uh, electronically so that we can continue to keep up with you. What we'd like to do now is I'm going to put the three-minute timer up. And before the three minutes are up, the, band, the praise team's going to come up here, and they're going to start singing when the three minutes are over. So that's a cue for you to get back to your seat. But go around and say hello to somebody you haven't talked to this morning. But Make before everybody feel that, uh-oh. But before oh, gosh. That, could you all join me I'm getting in a rendition of Happy Birthday to our pastor? It's not my birthday. <laughs> Which is going to be tomorrow, but we're going to sing it ahead of time. On three. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Jeff. Happy birthday to you. Three minutes. So now, now we can do three minutes. <laughs> Almost 60.
I thought maybe it's a toy. <clears throat> well, the last couple of weeks, we have covered what First Thessalonians has been telling us about the issue of the second coming. And I'm glad that Paul gave, this gave us this information so that we can understand, if you will, the sequence of events, how things are going to be. We don't have to look to outside sources because Scripture is pretty clear on this. Now, one of the things that we need to remember is this. The way the events were going to play out with the second coming was a, of a was of deep concern to the church at Thessalonica as well as other churches at that time because they weren't like we were. They were expecting Jesus to return at any second. And so much so that many of them were not working any longer. They were kind of literally sitting on the top of the mountain waiting for the Lord to come back. And the thing is, this overarching concern was because of what was going to happen to those who have died in Christ. When he, when he comes back and they're already dead, they wanted to know what was going to happen. So Paul wrote this part of the parts that we've been looking at in 1 Thessalonians to help ease the tension that the folks were feeling as a result of not knowing the fate of those who'd already died. So he wanted to enlighten them. And he, and he said, I want you to be encouraged by these words so that we don't have to worry about the fact that people have died before the Lord's returned. You know, today people are so fixated many times on the logistics of the second coming that if we're not careful, we can forget what's truly important for all of us to grasp. And that is, what are we called to do until he returns? Sometimes we want to get into certain things in Scripture that are basically almost, there's not a lot in Scripture that's hard to figure out. This one can be at times. But a lot of people want to get fascinated on this really deep stuff but they forget the stuff that's really important. And that is, what are we supposed to do with our lives until the return of the Lord? Jesus himself warned us that no one knew, not even him, when he's coming back. You see that in Matthew 24, 36. But yet throughout history, as Jerry pointed out last week, there have been people who've made these bold predictions only to be made to look silly. Even though we don't know when he's returning, it could be any second, it could be in three seconds, it could be in a millisecond, it could be in 3,000 years, we don't know. But one thing that we can know is God's will for us with passages like we're going to look at today that clearly indicates from God, this is what I want from you while you're waiting in, 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 season, in every season of life. And basically it's godly living, it's living for him. The way the second coming happens is of little consequence, to be honest with you, if we're not ready for his return. You can know all the things or know all the theories, which most of them are incorrect, but you can, you can learn those. But if you're not ready, does it really matter? Does it really matter? And what if you're banking on second chance theology to where you're waiting to see a bunch of people go up, but you die first and you've never given your life to the Lord? Or maybe you're waiting for some things that, don't, that aren't going to work the way you think they are, and the Lord returns, and you're not ready. You're not going to get that second chance. So I always tell people the, the end time stuff's interesting, but what's most important 
is what do you do while you're here? What do you do while you're here? The big idea of the message is this. We may not know the day of the Lord's return, but we always know God's will for us. And that will is for us to live for him in faithfulness and faithful obedience. Our passage today will give us an idea what godly living looks like. Because a lot of times we can talk about, well, I want to live godly life. What's that look like? Well, Paul's going to lay that out for us. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to begin by looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and through 15, and it says this. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who labor among you and preside over you in the Lord and admonish you, to esteem them most highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the undisciplined, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient toward all. See that no one pays back evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. So the first observation we have this morning is living for God while living with others in your life. So we're going to look at three different areas of life that God says, this is what I want you to do. And the first one is, as we live with others. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to reveal his will concerning on how we deal with other people. Now, in the beginning of this, his main focus and the main teaching centers around dealing with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we get to treat everybody else horribly. But this is what he's, he's focusing on here. And he begins with this, this uh, section by saying, you know, here's how I want you to treat your church leaders, your elders, and so on and so forth. This is what I want from you. And this section also, when we look at verse 12, it tells us first to acknowledge them. Now, this section also shows the leader's obligation back to the flock. So it's kind of a two-way street here. Leaders are called to labor hard on behalf of the flock. They're not called to just to have a positional title and do nothing. Uh, a lot of times people can sit on boards who have no knowledge of anything, but they get paid a lot of money. But what we have here is when you're a part of a church leadership, it's servant leadership. You're not an elder just to be, I'm an elder. And I've seen, not, fortunately, we don't deal with that here. We got good elders here. I'm so thankful to serve with these men. But I've been around others that they're elders because they just want to be in charge. And deacons, and depending on your denomination, they just want to be in charge. And I got a friend of mine who got run out of a church because his deacons tried to run the show. And the elders didn't have the backbone to do what they were supposed to do and put, put them, really, to put them in their place. But if you're wanting to be an elder or deacon because you, and by the way, deacons are servant, by the way, they're not leaders, other than by example. If you ever want those positions so that you can have those positions, that's the wrong heart. Because being an elder in the God's church is hard work. It's a big labor, and it's very difficult at times. And so what we have here is, is the church leaders are called to labor hard, and the church leaders are called to preside over the flock and admonish the flock when it's needed. Now, the word preside denotes one who has authority to care for others by doing good works. So as we preside, as leaders preside over the church, it's not one of those things where they're like, hey, I'm your boss, you're going to listen. But they serve them by good works. They show their care by service. The word admonish simply means to give instruction. And we, you know, I've seen situations where church elders have tried to give instruction to somebody and they didn't like it and they just left. And I'm like, you know, to be honest with you, okay, bye. Because if you're not willing to submit to the leaders of your church, why are you here? Because part of their job is to preside over the congregation and when needed to admonish and instruct. And sometimes people, are, their pride is so large that they can't be told anything by anyone. Church leaders are called to labor hard, to instruct, and to lead. And in the course of doing those things, sometimes it upsets people because they don't want those things done for them. It's not always an easy job. But I find it interesting that when Paul starts talking about how you deal with others in your life, the first people he goes to, he says, hey, church, appreciate your leaders. Why do you think he did that? Well, part of it is because a leader's job's tough. It can be thankless at times. This is one of the reasons of, in, in the qualifications to be an elder in 1 Timothy 3. It says desire to do the job, desire, desire the work. And the desire there is not to have power over people, but it's because you have a heart for people. And you feel like you have been gifted to be able to help lead people and to help guide them in the way that God wants them to. 
It's easy for people to take shots at leaders, whether it's in church or in the business world or even in government. But often, people want to lead from the back seat where they don't have any responsibility. And I, I served in a church, even one of the guys that I served with, he was wanting to lead, but he didn't want to take responsibility. He would have fired me eventually if the church would have stayed where it was. And I just said, no, I'm not doing that. But the fact is, our responsibility to church leaders is to acknowledge them. And the connotation here is that believers must know their shepherds deeply, respect them, and value their service. Now, the other side of that is it's the shepherd's job to make sure that they're known and that their work is worthy of respect. Such acknowledgement is more than just knowing their names, but it's knowing them. It's having an awareness of their personal lives, knowing what's happening with them. It entails a close personal acquaintance and results in, that results in caring for one another. Leaders care for you, you care for your leaders. Another word, another way to translate acknowledge is the word know. And there's a couple different words for, for the word know, K-N-O-W. This one deals with knowing by experience. And so that's how we're called to acknowledge them. It means to gain by experience. We have a track record with leaders that help us to appreciate them. I've been very blessed throughout my life as a Christian that I've had good godly men who have come alongside of me and have been a real blessing. Verse 13 says to esteem them for the work that they do. And the word esteem is closely tied to appreciate. We have that personal attachment. We have a respect for the position. We deeply appreciate what they do. And we're told to hold them in high regard. Apparently, some of the brethren at Thessalonica evidently had refused to follow their leaders. And Paul says, oh, no. Well, you're waiting for me. That's a no-no. You are supposed to esteem them, respect them, and listen to them. We need wise leadership today, even more so maybe than in a long time. But we still need wise people following them. An army of captains and colonels never won a battle. You've got to have it all. The work of the elder and the church leaders isn't easy, but the, because these positions come with great responsibility. Hebrews 13, 17 says, To obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls and will give an account for their work. Let them do this with joy and not complaints, for this would, not, would be no advantage to you. In other words, the Hebrew writer is saying, they're going to be accountable for what they do, but so are you. You're going to be accountable for how you treat them. The end of verse 13, he says, and by the way, be at peace among yourselves. And this is a significant charge, and it pertains to being at peace with our leaders and our brothers and sisters in Christ. When you look at verses, of verses 14 and 15, it's easy to see why they're called to be at peace with one another. The charges in verses, of four, verses, in verses 14 and 15 are for church leaders and for everyone in God's church. We have to have the correct attitudes to pull this off. First, he says, we're called to admonish or instruct the undisciplined. The word undisciplined in the Greek culture denoted, it was used in the military many times, of someone who was out of step, someone who wasn't following the rules, somebody who behaved disorderly or sometimes in an insubordinate manner, or sometimes they just weren't, they weren't doing anything horrible. They were just kind of out in la-la land not doing what they were supposed to do. The word came to mean to, to denote anyone who did not perform his or, her, his or her duty or follow through with their responsibility. And so when somebody is unruly, it's, it's all of our jobs to, hey, or excuse me, I should, it's some, in, uh, some versions use the word unruly. When we see folks in, the, in our church who are undisciplined, it's, it's up to all of us to say, hey, what can we do to help you? How can we help this? You know, the, the elders should be watching that, but we all know people in our circle of life if they're not doing what God's called them to do, we have an obligation to come alongside of them. Being undisciplined doesn't necessarily mean they're committing evil. We can be undisciplined if we fail to use the gifts that God has given us. In other words, God's given you a great gift, you won't use it. That's undisciplined because he's given you that for a reason. We're to use what we have for the betterment of God's kingdom and his church. And so there, there's part of that. The second thing we're called to comfort the discouraged. To comfort means to speak alongside, to bring words to them. A person who is discouraged or in grief or in pain, it's not just the elder's job to come alongside them, but it's, it's all of our jobs to be able to come alongside of people and to give them comfort. There are many things in life that are so discouraging, and we need to be there for one another. Why? Because we care. 
If your own child or your spouse was discouraged, you'd just say, ah, get over it. Now, honestly, some probably would, but anyway. We would be there trying to help them and try to help lift their spirits. The third group of people we're called to help are the weak. Weak means fragile. These brethren have a weak faith, and they're beleaguered by doubts. Their faith may not be strong enough to enjoy the freedoms they have in Christ. There are certainly, they are certainly more susceptible to error and to temptation and to sin than those who are stronger in their faith. Some weaker brethren have such sensitive, consciences, conscience, uh, sensitive conscience over their past sins that they can perceive things that are sin that aren't really sin. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when Paul talks about meat eating, uh, the meat that was sacrificed at the temple that people were buying and eating. And he told us what to do in that case. But we are called to help them to become strong. Not to say, you weakling, or you're stupid, you don't know that. We're called to encourage them. To help means to hold on to or to cling. So when we're helping the weak, we're called to hold on to them. Fig figuratively, sometimes literally. And try to help them through. Those who are weak in their faith need to know they're not alone. They also need to know that at one point you were weak in your faith in that area too. To help them to see that, man... You got through it, I can get through it. We're also told to be patient with all. <laughs> I wish that wasn't there. <laughs> Being patient means a restraint of anger. There are some folks who just get under your skin. Nah, that never happens, does it? We have brothers and sisters in Christ for whatever reason who will make you want to lose your patience with them. You just, just something that goes on, something about what they do, what it just makes you, makes you want to lose your mind. But Paul says we're to be patient with everyone. It can be tough dealing with undisciplined, discouraged, and weak brethren. But we can't just throw our hands up because sometimes it's tempting to say, you know, there's just so much I can't do anything. That's not what we're called to do. This is one of the reasons why the church is so important. I can be a Christian without going to church. Well, show me that in Scripture. You know, I know there's special cases. What about the prisoner of war? Okay, yeah, well, what about, yeah, we can go there. But the fact of the matter is, we are called to be here for one another and to help one another. Verse 15 told us also, tells us also that we're never to return evil for evil. But instead, we're called to pursue what is good for one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, and for all those outside of Christ. <laughs> In other words, we are called not to return evil to evil for, to anyone. We're always looking out what's best for everyone. Those in the church family, in the, brother, in the family of God, and those outside. Because imagine you're dealing with people outside of Christ and something happens and, and they do something bad to you and you return it right back to them. Think you're ever going to win them? Or a people group that's living a lifestyle way outside of Scripture and we're going to be mean and protest them and call them names. Think we're ever going to influence them for Christ? No. We have to really be careful of that. We are to look out what's best for people. As a matter of fact, we're supposed to seek that which is best for people. In other words, to go to the work, to the trouble, to figure that out. We are to be an active, to actively be pursuing what is best for other people. Not just passively. We have to be intentional. And sometimes in church, it's really tempting, even you know, as a church body, to be to not be intentional. You know, one of the things I love this morning, and one of the reasons I do like the greeting time for three minutes, is it gives us a chance to get around again and, 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 and meet people. And it just does my heart good to see even when people who aren't normally, that norm, you know, who maybe just stepped in the door, that people go talk to them. Because you've got to be intentional about that. I'll be honest with you, our second service, we're not as good at that in that second service. And they're going to have to learn to be intentional about being a little bit more open and welcoming to people because that makes an impact on people. So if we have people coming through our doors and we just ignore them, is that what's spiritually best for them? Are we going to have an opportunity to bring them closer to Christ or bring them to Christ if they're not there? The answer no. So we have to be intentional in what we do. We're to seek out the good for others as a matter of habit. Let's look at verses 16 to 22. Rejoice, or excuse me, always rejoice. Constantly pray. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not extinguish the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but examine all things. Hold fast to what is good. 
stay away from every form of evil. So the second piece of God's will is living for God with God in your life. While we're waiting for the Lord to return, we're called to live for him. If he's in your life, that's your call. If he's not, you can kind of do whatever you want, but ultimately we hope you'll decide to live for Christ. Verses 16 through 22 are filled with attitudes and actions that we're called to do as we live that life for Christ. These are things that Jesus or God's or Paul says through here, this is God's will. We're called to rejoice always. Man, I, I wish that wasn't there. How come I just can't rejoice when things are going well? You know, I mean, this goes to joy. And what's funny here is I have to think that the readers of the Thessalon- this letter had to be going, what? They were being persecuted. <laughs> rejoice when you're not being persecuted. Rejoice when things are going well. Rejoice sometimes. They had to be looking at this and said, Paul, you're crazy. You're crazy. Rejoice always. Just living life for these people was tough. You know, if we want to drink, we got a water fountain out there. We need to go to the restroom. You know, we, it was just those simple things that we just take for granted. They didn't have, that wasn't simple for them. It was very difficult. It would have been easy just to be depressed about how difficult life was for them now. In fairness, if they'd have come to this time and seen how easy it was and had to go back, it'd probably be really depressing. But their life was hard. I mean, I look back, I love, you, you know, I love baseball. Man, I love baseball. I love the history of baseball. And one of the things I love is I look back at the players in the 20s and the in 1910s and, you know, the pictures that go back even to the 1800s. And you'll see a picture of somebody. And it's like, that dude looks like he's 60 years old. Yeah, he's a 21-year-old rookie. I mean, life was, even then, was difficult. It would be easy to think that God had abandoned them because of the persecution they were facing. But Paul says to rejoice always. And by the way, the verb tense of that means continuous action. Man. The consequences of receiving God's salvation should be the reason for us to rejoice. We're going through bad stuff. If we're going through bad stuff, who wants to deal with that? And it doesn't mean we jump up and down and say, yippee, I'm dying of whatever. By the way, we're all dying. Um, but, But the thing is, we should be able to rejoice because we know where we're going when that time comes. We know who we serve. We know the truth of who he is. See, circumstances shouldn't dictate whether we're going to rejoice or not. It shouldn't. Rejoicing doesn't come from an outward condition. It comes from inside of us because of the spiritual riches that we have in Christ. We can rejoice because of the assurances that we have in Christ that he's going to keep his promises. It's so easy to focus on the negative. And to be honest with you, this is why I really don't watch much news anymore. I really don't. You know, the government shutdown that was supposed to happen, oh boy, it's going to be Armageddon. Except for the pay part for people who work, actually it'd probably be a good deal if they weren't doing anything more to ruin the country, but that's just a side note. But, you know, it's like whatever happens with it, happens with it. I'm glad that they figured it out for another 45 days and they'll go through this circus and dog and pony show again. By the way, you realize neither side really wants to fix anything, just so you know. But it's just a show. But it's so easy to focus on the negative. I, had, I pretty much quit watching the news, haven't I? I hardly watch any news anymore. You know why? Negative, 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 negative. They just didn't call it the news. They should call it the negatives. Because that's what it is. It's just what it is. Any president, whether it's this one or the previous one or the previous one, if they cured cancer, one side would just blast them. They're horrible. Or they solve world hunger. Well, I can't believe they solve world hunger. How are we gonna, now where are we going to spend all those trillions of dollars we spent to fix it? They're going to go at each other. But yet, one can be a, well, anyway, I'm not going to go there. You, you know what's going on. It's, it's hypocritical. But it's so easy just to focus on that. I'm sick of it, to be honest with you. I'm going to vote. I'm going to do my things. But they can play their dog and pony show. We're also called to pray constantly. When, you struggle, when you're facing struggles and difficult situations, what do you do? You want me to be really honest with you? I try to figure it out. Wrong answer. First thing we should be doing is praying. And I'm as guilty as anyone. Ah, God's busy. I got this. And the train wreck just gets worse. We are called to pray constantly. The first thing that we should really do at any time is to be prayer. And by the way, it's not 
Don't do that while you're driving. You're, while you're texting and driving, by the way, you can't do that. Um, <laughs> it's communicating with God. You don't have to be in a certain position to do that. We should always be communicating with God. Prayer is often how obstacles that stand in our way of joy are removed. It's powerful. If we really believed it was powerful, we'd use it more, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? But if it's just an afterthought, oh, I better pray. Oh, gosh, my wife just told me, asked me, did you pray about it? You know I didn't. That's why you said that. Um, <laughs> if, it's, if it's that important to us, we need to do it. Pray without ceasing, constantly lifting our souls to Christ. Prayer is to be a, con a, a constant in our lives. We're also called to give thanks. We are told that in everything, we are to give thanks. I hate it when they use these overarching terms that mean no exceptions. <sighs> but we're to give thanks in everything because we don't know what's coming to us, how it is going to affect other people. Sometimes we have to look and pray really hard to find the reason to be thankful. But yet, we're called to be thankful. And by the way, he says, this is God's will. <laughs> Focusing on being thankful will help us to keep from feeling, uh, help us keep from keep. It will keep us from feeling sorry for ourselves when difficult things happen. Because sometimes when difficult things happen, it's really easy, woe is me, and I get that. Man, some bad stuff hits us. But if we have that attitude that I'm gonna be thankful to God, It'll change things. We're also called not to extinguish the Spirit. Paul compares the Holy Spirit to a fire that can be put out. When we live our lives as we await the return of the Lord, we're keep, to keep our focus on the Holy Spirit so that we don't quench the Spirit's work in our lives. We can extinguish the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives by immorality, hardness of heart, carelessness, or just living a life contrary to what God wants, wants for us. You can extinguish the Spirit in your life. The Spirit is given to help, convict, help to convict us of sin in John 16, 8, to help the renewal process in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, to help free us from the bondage of sin in Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through, uh, 6 through 9, or 3 through 9. It's to be the marker seal that shows that we belong to God in 2 Corinthians 1, 22. It's a, he's a gift to us for God's work in 1 Corinthians 12, and he's called to live within us in Romans 8, 9. But see, we can extinguish that by carelessness, callousness, hardness of heart, just, being, just living in immorality, ignoring what the Spirit's saying. When I refuse to live up to my God, knowledge of God, my heart will tell me, or my heart eventually will become hardened, and the Spirit won't be able to work with me. Because remember, God never takes away your free will. We need to focus on the Spirit's leading of our life. There have been times, to be honest with you, I did not want to follow that leading. Because maybe it was contrary to what I wanted. Maybe I was fearful where it was going to take me. And that's a miserable feeling. Life is so much better. We say, you know what? I'm just going to follow the Spirit. In verses 20 to 21, we're called to focus on God's Word. When he says, don't hold in contempt, that means to set oneself against. So he says, don't hold in contempt the, uh, the prophecies. In other words, embrace them, respect them, follow them. We need to work hard to see that doesn't happen. That, that, that part of just ignoring things. We're called to examine truth to make sure that it's truth. If we're able to do this, we know what truth is. Folks, cults prey on Christians who don't know the Word of God. So they come peddling their false message. There's just enough truth in it to where people fall for it. For Christians who don't know to, how to discern what's true and what's not, they, they're, they're a sucker for it. You look at any of the local cults, and they're full of people who were once Christians. Quote, unquote. To examine means to prove something genuine. Too many people write off some or all, all the word of God because they don't like what it says and they don't want to line up, they don't want to line, line their beliefs up with it because it's contrary to what they want to happen in life. We are supposed to preach the truth with conviction and stand on truth without apology. Verse 22 says to stay away from every form of evil also. These are the things that we are supposed to do for God as we live for him in those verses. Now let's finish up with verses 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself make you completely holy and may your spirit and soul and body be kept entirely blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is trustworthy. 
And he will, in fact, do this. So the last, I'll add the, mission, the last charge here is living for God while living with yourself. I'm going to be brief here mainly because of time, but we also have to learn to live with ourselves because I know a lot of people that hate themselves. They don't like anything about themselves. Past sin has made them so guilty that they can't get past it and they can't allow God to love them. And if we're waiting for Jesus, but we can't allow God to love us, do you see the problem? I struggled with this for a little bit in my early in my walk. I did not, and I still don't feel like I deserve anything from God. But it was, it was tough at times because my past life sometimes held me back because I'd think, well, people are going to think I'm just full of bull or that I'm just putting on a show or that it's not real. And I was really trying to get God to change my life. See, the God of peace, when you come to him, when you're, when you're baptized into Christ, you, you put your faith in him, you repent, you confess your sins, you're baptized into Christ, you come out of that baptistry, guess what happens? You are made completely holy. And then your life is about trying to live up to that holiness. And grace says, Jeff, you failed, you didn't quite get there, but my grace, because of the blood of Jesus, will make up that difference. I cannot do this on my own. But the thing that I had to, to reconcile in my own mind was, yeah, what I did in my past, I did. But guess what? God's forgiven it. And too many people allow their past to haunt them. They allow themselves to be defined by their past, and they cannot move forward. Or they'll try, and they just, something's holding them back. They really look at other people and say, man, I wish I was on fire for Jesus like that. And then they start thinking about it, and Satan says, yeah, but you know what you did. You know who you were. You know what you did to that person. You know you weren't a very good father. You weren't a very good mother. You weren't a very good husband. You weren't a very good wife. You committed these crimes, and it holds us back. Are you defining yourself by your mistakes? You know how I define myself? Saved, holy, and a saint in God's eyes. Now, that can be done arrogantly, or it can be done humbly knowing that the only reason you can name yourself by those things is because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of what he's done. The, the righteousness that anything that I have is not of, my, of me, from me, it's, it's the righteousness of God. Too many people let their past haunt them. Why? Don't you believe that God forgives your sins? And can you tell me what sin it says that he doesn't forgive when you're baptized? Which one? Some people think it's divorce, the way they treat people. Well, there's nothing, doesn't say, all your sins are forgiven but this. Or whatever it is, there's no sin that's not forgiven. I know that God sees us holy and blameless. In practical terms, we're far from that. Our life is about living up to what God, how God sees us. Not because it's like, well, I got to really earn God's favor. No, it's because I love Jesus. I love what he's done I love that I have eternal life through him. And my appreciation, I show it by living for him, not by any other means. If I'm trying to live for him so I can earn a paycheck, I've, I've, I've missed the boat. If I'm trying to earn my salvation, I've missed the boat. But the other side of that coin is if I refuse to live for him, I'm not showing him any appreciation. I just want the goodies without, any, without anything. Don't allow yourself to be defined by your sin or your past. Verse 24 reminds us, it says, oh, by the way, God is trustworthy. He's going to do these things. And I believe specifically in context, he's talking about verse 23. But overarching, he's talking about the whole, the whole thing. In Christ, in Christ, folks, if you don't hear anything else I tell you this morning, hear this. In Christ, in God's eyes, you are not defined by who you were. You're defined by who you are in Christ. And I see way too many Christians that don't get that. Learn to love yourself. You know why? Because God loves you. Nobody else may, <laughs> but God loves you. And for that reason, you can love yourself. So what are we called to do when the Lord returns? Wait on the mountaintop? Just read a bunch of books and treat everybody else however and just live our life however? Nope. Paul lays it out right here. This is an excellent starting point to know God's will for your life. You don't know when he's coming back, but you know what you're supposed to be doing. 
Our application point is this. We can trust God to be faithful to the end as we offer our lives loyally to him. Amen? All right. We have a song of a decision that our um, praise team is going to come up and lead us in. And if you have a decision for Christ, we invite you to come forward this morning. If you've allowed yourself, and you're outside of Christ particularly, and you've allowed yourself to be defined by your past or even what you're doing now, you're wrought with guilt and shame, or you just know maybe you're living a pretty good life, but you know something's missing. I tell you what's missing, it's Jesus, and you need him today. I'm so glad that I came to that point in my life that I figured that out. Life's been so much better. But if you need to make a decision for Christ, we invite you to come forward this morning. If you're an immersed believer and would like to make First Christian your home, we'd love to have you come forward this morning. If you're struggling and need prayer, we'd be glad to have you come forward and pray with you, or one of our elders, Roger, would be glad to pray with you. But if you have a decision to make, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing our song of decision. When you prepare for communion, what's running through your mind? I mean, when I first became, before I was a Christian, um, you know, I was raised in the church I was raised in. Um, you you would come up and somebody put a put a wafer in your mouth, and we actually had wine. Um, it was, but anyway, look forward to that. Um, 
But then as when I started going to church, you know, when I, when I got older, you know, I sat during the communion time. I didn't partake because I'm like, I didn't feel like I should be. And I just, just kind of blanked out, you know, went into man mode. You know, the, the brain was empty, wasn't thinking anything necessarily. But then as I started growing in Christ and learning about him, I started to really think about, well, why am I doing this? I mean, I know the scripture, the example was they did it daily, then eventually they did it weekly. And I kept, and I'd ask, why, why are we doing this? And then as I read more and more scripture, you know, constantly Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Paul says, hey, let a person examine themselves, so let them partake. And there's other passages that kind of do the same thing. So what it did for me is it helped me to realize that it wasn't just a, okay, check, we got that done, but it's a meaningful time in our service. When we're called to remember Jesus, and we're called to examine ourselves. And I used to think that meant, okay, what all bad things did I do this week so, I could, so God could punish me? But then I come to learn that, no, that's not how my Lord works. That when I'm examining myself, yeah, I am looking to see, okay, how, where am I with Jesus? That not, is not necessarily negative, but I'm looking, where am I with Jesus? Where was I this week with him? Where was I yesterday? Was I doing things and trying to keep Jesus out of my life so I didn't want him to see what's going on? Or am I trying to be one with him? And as we take this, yeah, we remember that the, what the cup represents, that it represents his blood that was shed, that without that shed blood, we don't have salvation, that that bread represents the, his broken body that we, we have, that we partake in. But more importantly, on top of those things, we remember who he is, what he's promised, and what awaits and so now what I do when I examine myself, I, ex I look at, okay, where was I this week? I still do that. But I also look at where do I want to be tomorrow? Where do I want to be with him? And the answer to that is I want to be closer. And so a lot of times what I try to do is I try to look and say, what, what, is, what obstacle do I see that's getting in the way of that? And I examine that and say, okay, Lord, what can I do to remove that obstacle? Sometimes it's an obstacle that I might not want to easily get rid of. And I need to ask the Lord to give me the strength and the heart to remove it because communion basically means coming together. It means one. And so I want to be one with my Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of remembrance, this time of joy, this time of, 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 of promises, and this time of remembrance, and this time of commitment. And Father, I pray that as we partake this morning, we examine our hearts, not looking just to condemn ourselves, not looking to beat ourselves up, but Lord, asking ourselves, where are we with you? Because we know where you are with us. And Father, help us to keep our focus on you. Help us to want to grow closer to you. And Lord, if we find obstacles that are in the way of that, Lord, help us to remove them, even if they look insurmountable, because we know you're more powerful than the obstacle. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
On the inside of your bulletin, we have some announcements, and I also want to show you something for Operation Christmas Child here in a moment. Um, today, we have, um, Jerry has all of his youth activities. Roger's group is meeting. Uh, the, um, <laughs> I didn't see that in the bulletin. <laughs> I'm going to get Crystal for that one. Um, Wednesday, we have all of our studies. Uh, Saturday, we have a, our pancake breakfast. we got a lot of things going on on Saturday. We have our pancake breakfast, and we also need, a, we need people to help. We're kind of doing a work day. We're going to be clearing some brush, and so the more people we have here, the quicker it will get done. So you can come in and eat a breakfast and then go do some work. And then the medical team meets at 9 o'clock. Um, and if you're on the medical team, you can come at 7 and have breakfast, do some work, and go to the medical team. And it'd probably be good to have some of the medical team here while we're working, too. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you know? Um, but anyway, uh, the harvest party preparation is underway. We're asking for donations of wrapped candy for this event. We're also collecting items in good working condition for the dime toss. Could be toys, games, books. No, you, you can read that announcement. On Saturday, October 7th, of course, we marked the, the uh, pancake breakfast. We have the work party going on then. Also, you have nomination forms for elders and deacons, and the elders that are up for nomination, that, that, excuse me, that are, are elders, uh, the nominating committee, oh, I'll get this out in a minute, Al Brandon's the elder, Alan Goodman is the deacon, and, and of course, Crystal's our admin assistant. We're going to have those out for 14 days. If you have somebody you would like to nominate, just follow the instructions explicitly, because if you don't, we don't see that, and it gets thrown away, so make sure you follow that by the bylaws. The annual meeting, of course, will take place on Sunday, December 3rd at 4 p.m. And then the food pantry is needing some items also. Um, at this time, I wanna, we're going to, going to view a video from Operation Christmas Child from the computer. When that shoebox is open, they're overjoyed. You can see them shouting, jumping. Look at how much they are excited. This is the first time those children are receiving the shoeboxes. They are so happy. You can hear the laughter. You can hear the cheer. That excitement, it goes and goes and goes. Right now, we're in Ukraine. And today, we've given out the 200 millionth shoebox to a little girl here. So it's a lot of fun. It's a privilege for us to be able to come and to help the people as much as we can. Every box is important because every box is an opportunity to tell a child about God's love, about His Son, Jesus Christ. There's so much joy that one gift box can give. They really experience the love of Jesus. At Operation Christmas Show, we celebrate something as simple as the shoe box because God uses it to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We got a full box on this this is such an amazing time. We're so happy to be here. This shoebox gift will impact a child's life all year round. We never dreamed we'd have an army of men and women who would come to make this program happen. This is what it's all about, telling others about Jesus. These shoeboxes go into 120 different countries where pastors and missionaries are going to use them to bring the gospel to kids. So you may think it's just a simple gift at Christmas time, but it's the gift of the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ. When that shoebox leaves that distribution center and it goes around the world, that's not just one person. That's the body of Christ joined together, delivering the good news of the gospel. They go by plane, they go by ship, they go by riverboat, they go by camels, they go by motorbikes. And these boxes go to some of the most remote areas of the world. And every box counts. After receiving shoeboxes, children are invited to participate in the Greatest Journey Discipleship Program. These children have just completed 12 lessons in the Greatest Journey. I believe that discipleship is the key, and they are now followers of Christ. They will tell their friends about Jesus. My name is Gladys, and I am nine years old. My friend Kemi told me I needed to go with her to church. I wanted to teach her about the Word of God. And when she came to my church, she received a gift box. For a long time, I asked my mom for a blanket. When I opened my shoebox, I found a blanket in it. When I came home, I showed it to my mom, and she said it was great. I told her about Jesus. 
Now me, my mom, my grandma and Kemi go to church together. I am certain of one thing. God is my savior. Every box counts. Every box touches a child. It's like a snowflake. There's not one shoebox that is the same. And we are reaching millions of children with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you get the heart of the child, you will reach the heart of the parents, you will reach the heart of the family, and then you will touch the community. We are seeing churches being planted, and more and more churches are being built. We will do whatever it takes to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. That gift box is the beginning into their hearts. Isn't it incredible how these gifts touch the lives of these children? The joy, the smiles, it changes lives. Every year we see tens of thousands of children discipled. And we couldn't do this without you, so thank you for packing the boxes. Thank you for praying for these children around the world. God bless you, and keep packing those boxes. So you can see we have boxes that are starting to get put out, so if you'd like to grab some of those. And um, um, so anyway, that's, it's, it's a really awesome experience. Um, on our prayers, we'd like to thank Rich, uh, Ricardo for the many years of hard work uh, leading the men's pancake breakfast, and we're, we're glad that he's been able to do that. Also, you can, you've probably noticed our pictures a little better, just a little bit. I want to thank Andrew Schofield. He helped head up the project to get this this thing put up. We still have a few little tweaks to make to it, but it's operational, and so you can tell in the video if you, I, it freaks me out when I look at the back wall now. I'm like, oh gosh, that's a lot different. But anyway, uh, we're thankful that we we're able to do that. Uh, we have things we're praying for, praying for our country. We're praying for people with their health issues. We have many people we've been lifting up in prayer, praying for our troops. Uh, we're also lifting up our shut-ins. And by the way, Joe Kaiser's birthday is tomorrow, so don't forget that. And uh, Operation Christmas Child is the outreach we're praying for this month. We'll be showing some short videos throughout the month. And we're also lifting up CareNet as our mission of the month and the work that they're doing. So keep them in your prayers. At this time, let's stand together. I'll give you a moment to lift up your heart to the Lord in prayer, and then I'll close us with prayer together. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that we could come together today for this time of worship, and I pray, Lord, it was an encouragement, and some, we got some instruction that will help us to grow closer to you. Lord, I pray for Operation Christmas Child that every box that, go, that goes out has a multiple impact for your kingdom, because many places around the world are a problem. Governments aren't the solution. You are. And as we spread the gospel and people's hearts change, things will change. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to come together to worship today, and I pray that as we live life this week, we live it rejoicing in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. for joining us for church this morning. Have a great week in the Lord, everybody.